Coming soon, The Assassination, an investigation into a true story that shook the world. A new podcast from the BBC World Service. Subscribe to The Assassination now and you'll get every episode automatically. Hello and welcome to NewsAd. Live from the BBC World Service in London, I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, Russia's main opposition leader has been barred from standing against Vladimir Putin in next year's presidential election. Also on the programme, after Pope Francis intervenes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict during his, his traditional Christmas Day message, how much clout does the Vatican hold? And in the second half of the programme, James Kamarasari puts me and my colleagues to the sword. I mean, test. Who's this and what's the story? I respect what he's done. 50 and 0. That's after the fact. I was like, I accept it and just let, it, let, let him be. If I had a rematch, I would correct it and I would beat him. Colin McGregor. Conor McGregor. Conor. Conor McGregor. Mm. He, said, he Colin. said Colin. He said Colin. Half Conor. a point for that. <laughs> no, I said, uh, I said Colin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lessons in enunciation in 25 minutes. We begin with news that can't count as a surprise, but will count as an important intervention in next year's presidential election in Russia. Alexei Navalny, the highest profile opposition figure, has been formally barred from competing. The Central Electoral Commission ruled him ineligible because of a conviction for corruption. The conviction Mr Navalny has always maintained was politically motivated. Addressing the commissioners before their judgment, Alexei Navalny said that to to despair him would be to disenfranchise millions of would-be voters. It's not about Navalny. It's about the fact that a candidate is needed, who will finally come to the election and speak openly about everything that happens in our country now, who will describe our reality honestly, the absence of prospects, poverty... I did that, and that's why you don't want to let me take part in the election. It's an election in which Vladimir Putin is seeking a fourth term in office, which would make him the longest-serving Russian leader since Stalin. What does our Moscow correspondent Sarah Rainsford make of today's events? I think this was a a very much an expected ruling. It was essentially the Electoral Commission saying that, according to the law, a man with a or a woman with a unspent criminal conviction uh, cannot run for president of Russia until 10 years after that conviction is spent. Uh, Mr Navalny has conviction for fraud. It's a suspended sentence which he's serving, uh, but it's far from being spent. And uh, that 10 years, of course, has not expired. So um, legally speaking, according to the Electoral Commission, they were simply imposing and implementing the law and saying that he has no right to run for president. Of course, he himself has argued for many years, ever since that case was brought, that it was fabricated precisely for this purpose, and that is to keep him out of the presidential election. What level of support does he have, do you think? I think it's very fair to say he is the opposition candidate in Russia with the greatest support. Um, He describes himself as the only opponent to Vladimir Putin, the only real opponent. The question is, and it's a very big question, how wide his support actually is, how big it is. The point is it's never been tested in a a fair race. Uh, Mr Putin, of course, is on television every single day. Uh, Alexei Navalny is not. But he does have YouTube, he does have the internet, he does use uh, social media and he does bring bring people out onto the streets on a fairly regular basis. And on YouTube, for example, his anti-corruption videos get hundreds of of thousands of uh, likes and and watches and all the rest of it. So he, he does have support. It was interesting that at the meeting that he held 
on Sunday to nominate him as, as a candidate for the elections, the people who turned out there were a lot older than some of those who'd come onto the streets in his support in protests in the past. So it does suggest that his support does uh, span the age uh, demographics uh, somewhat um, because in the past he's, he's been uh, painted as someone who attracts a youth vote. I think his support is wider than that. The question is how big it is. Right. And I, I mean, I guess, uh, yes, you're right. We won't get to know how wide and, and deep that support is if this ruling stands. Um, but if it is indeed the case that it, it's not necessarily a terribly level playing field for the election, and given that the opinion polls do point to, you know, a pretty considerable support for Vladimir Putin. Why do you think he, if it, this is politically motivated, he would be afraid of running against Mr Navalny? I think it's because of the media, it's because of the message. The point about a presidential election campaign is that every candidate who runs, who's registered to run, gets the right to time on state television. And here in Russia, that is a very powerful tool. Uh, and it's one that Mr Navalny would use to criticise Mr Putin very personally and very directly. He would talk about corruption, he would talk about uh, things in this country that he sees uh, going badly, and he would blame Mr Putin personally for all of that. Now, you could argue, and it's true, that there are candidates who are being registered uh, to take part in these elections uh, who will say similarly critical things, um, but they won't be so personal. Some of them are seen as candidates uh, of yesterday, people who've run multiple times and have very minimal support, and none of the candidates who is uh, going to be registered to run has anything like the kind of char charisma, the kind of support that Alexei Navalny can command. And I think it's a bit personal too. I think, you know, uh, Mr Putin has never mentioned that Alexei Navalny by name for years. Uh, I think he sees... Um, he, I think he doesn't like him very much personally. He refuses to, as I say, to mention his name in public in any uh, press conferences or whenever he's questioned. Uh, he is quite disparaging, quite um, uh, critical of Mr Navalny without ever mentioning his name. What do you think the next step for Alexei Navalny will be? I think we'll see protests uh, and I think we'll see uh, a lot of, uh, of shouting about this being unfair. Uh, Mr Navalny has said that there will be a nationwide protest. Uh, he said that that's going to be planned. He said he wants it to be across the whole of Russia. So I don't think we'll see anything immediate. I don't think people are going to take to the streets in great numbers to protest this decision just yet. Uh, but he has also called for a what is essentially a boycott of the results. Now, he's trying to make the point that he doesn't want a passive boycott. He doesn't want people just to sit on their sofas and not bother coming to the elections because they can't influence the result. He wants an active electoral strike. So he wants all those volunteers who've registered to support him across Russia, and that's nearly 200,000 uh, young volunteers. He wants them now to activate, to, to go out onto the streets, essentially, and, and go around the electorate uh, telling them that they shouldn't vote, they shouldn't take part in this election because it's not a free and fair process. So he wants a, a very broad boycott. That, of course, is uh, a difficult thing, I think, to, to pull off, uh, but it's certainly what he's calling for. That was our Moscow correspondent, Sarah Rainsford. Perhaps the most contentious piece of diplomacy in recent weeks has centred on that most contested city, Jerusalem. First, Donald Trump announced that he was upending the orthodoxy and recognising Jerusalem as Israel's capital, despite a long-standing UN resolution saying that the city's status remains to be resolved. Pope Francis had been one of many world leaders who'd expressed their disquiet over President Trump's move. 
Today, the pontiff used his traditional Christmas Day message once again to call for a fresh attempt to negotiate peace between Israelis and Palestinians. We see Jesus in the children of the Middle East who continue to suffer because of growing tensions between Israelis and Palestinians. On this festive day, let us ask the Lord for peace for Jerusalem and for all the Holy Land. Let us pray that the will to resume dialogue may prevail between the parties. A negotiated solution can finally be reached, one that would allow the peaceful coexistence of two states within mutually agreed and internationally recognized borders. So what can the spiritual leader of more than a billion Catholics do for the very temporal problem of conflict in the Middle East? Ulla Gudmundsson is a former Swedish ambassador to the Vatican. I think the Middle East is a difficult area for the Pope because obviously the diplomatic impact of a Pope is great, always greatest in countries with a Catholic majority. And in the Middle East, the Christians and even most of the Catholics are a very small minority and mainly the conflict is in religious terms between Jews and Muslims. Obviously, he has a moral impact. He has moral clout. When the Pope speaks, the world listens and the world can be embarrassed, I think. Obviously, he cannot work wonders in the Middle East. We did see in uh, Syria in 2013 that this particular Pope was able in one week to make uh, peace vigils happen for Syria. And he launched uh, diplomatic initiatives vis-a-vis the G20, which may have provided the main parties, Russia, the US, with a fig leaf, which made them step back from from the brink in the crisis over the chemical weapons. But the, the Middle East is a very difficult area for anyone, and one cannot hope, one cannot expect the Pope to to work uh, wonders. But it's a very very important area for the Holy See's diplomacy because we're speaking of the Holy Land, the heartland of of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, do you think that he has to also, in a sense, respect his office uh, and not push things too far, not to turn it into too either pointed or too personal a message? I think popes, and including Pope Francis, doesn't want to get too far involved in day-to-day politics of the world. I think he wants to maintain, uh, a Pope wants to maintain his ability to be listened to by all sides. But as regards the Middle East, uh, traditionally the Holy See has been sympathetic to the cause of the Palestinians. One reason has been that many Palestinian refugees were Christians and they had there's certainly a, a very strong supporter of the two-state solution. Earlier on, the 60s and 70s, they also pushed for an internationalization of Jerusalem. Obviously, that's not on the card for the foreseeable future. The Vatican is an extraordinary institution, I mean, just to state the gleaming, gleamingly obvious, but it, it is extraordinary in the sense that it's the world's smallest country, I think, uh, but it also has one of the world's largest diplomatic networks. I I guess that's because of an accident of history. But do you think that 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 very extent of its diplomacy also confers a certain weight on on the diplomatic activity that it engages in? 
Definitely. And I wouldn't say that the extensive diplomatic network is so much a question of history. It, it actually was built up mainly in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. It existed in Europe before then, but it became a worldwide diplomatic network under Pope uh, Paul VI. But it's true that the Holy See has an extensive diplomatic network. It has embassies also in many remote and small countries, where certainly my country, Sweden, wouldn't have a resident ambassador embassy. And they have unique sources of information insofar that there are always Catholics in, I would say, every country of the world. And the nuncio, the papal ambassador, can lift his phone and call on a missionary somewhere in the middle of nowhere and ask, hey, what's going on here? Do you think we are going to face a revolution in the next couple of weeks? And certainly that's one very important reason why nearly every state of this world has diplomatic relations with the Holy See, because the Holy See uh, and the Vatican knows a lot of what uh, goes on in the world. Ola Gudmundsson, who spent five years in the Vatican as the Swedish ambassador. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. And let me tell you uh, about what are the top stories in the BBC newsroom this hour. The Russian opposition leader, as we've been hearing, Alexei Navalny, has called for a boycott of next year's presidential election after being barred from standing against Vladimir Putin. Mr Navalny said an election without him would lack legitimacy. Also in Moscow, investigators are examining why a bus sped into an underground walkway, killing four people. Canada's announced it's banning Venezuela's ambassador to Ottawa from returning to the country as in expelling its chargé d'affaires. The Canadian foreign minister said the move was in retaliation for the expulsion of his own chargé d'affaires from Caracas over the weekend. You're with the BBC and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. The Christmas period is often, politically at least, a quiet one. Not in Peru, though, this year. The president, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, having avoided at the last minute being impeached, has now pardoned his predecessor, Roberto Fujimori, who'd been serving a lengthy sentence for human rights violations and corruption. President Kaczynski said he was releasing Mr Fujimori on health grounds. The 79-year-old former head of state was taken from prison to hospital on Saturday, suffering from low blood pressure and an irregular heartbeat. It was there in hospital that his son, Kenji, read out the announcement to his bedridden father. The President of the Republic has decided to grant a humanitarian pardon to Mr Alberto Fujimori and seven other people in similar condition. Congratulations, said the son to his father, the two of them laughing and ruffling each other's hair. Simeon Tegel is a freelance journalist based in Lima. Why does he think Alberto Fujimori was pardoned? 
Ostensibly, the reasons President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski has been giving in recent months is that he's concerned about Fujimori's health and he doesn't want him to die in prison. Fujimori is 79. But I think right now very few people in Peru are buying that. This pardon comes literally two days after there was an impeachment vote of President Kuczynski in Congress and he narrowly survived that. And the reason he survived that, it would seem, is because Kenji Fujimori, Alberto Fujimori's son, and several other members of Congress who are sympathetic to him, decided to vote against the impeachment. And it's basically thanks to their votes, it would seem, that Kuczynski is still president today. Why is Alberto Fujimori such a divisive figure inside Peru? His legacy, he was president from 1990 to 2000, is just extremely controversial. He came uh, to power at a time of economic crisis, not to say catastrophe. There was hyperinflation and all sorts of other problems, widespread poverty and hunger. But also you had the Shining Path terrorist group, which was literally killing tens of thousands of people and all but besieging Lima. And while Fujimori was president, basically Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path, was defeated largely. There's some controversy about the degree to which Fujimori should get the credit for all of that. But a lot of Peruvians do give him the credit for that. So he's revered by them. But on the other hand, there's a large section of of Peruvians who loathe Fujimori because he was an autocrat. He was also a kleptocrat. Billions of dollars of public money disappeared while he was president. But there were also severe human rights abuses. He shuttered Congress, shuttered the courts and ran death squads, which killed suspected subversives, some of them who had nothing to do with Shining Path and one of them who was an eight-year-old boy. Polls before the pardon and before the impeachment vote showed support for Fujimori being released around 65%. But it's not clear what the assumptions were that people were making when they approved that, because this is a humanitarian pardon, supposedly, that Fujimori has been given, which would require him to be either terminally ill or seriously ill. But there's a lot of controversy surrounding the medical report. It's written by three doctors, but one of them is Fukimori's own doctor. He's been a doctor for Fukimori for the last 20 years. So a lot of people here are questioning his objectivity and saying that, well, if you want to give him a, a pardon on medical grounds, fair enough, but you've got to have impartial doctors. But loads um, of people once, have also yeah. got to be questioning the timing of this, given, as you say, it happened just a couple of days after the current president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, managed to avoid getting impeached. Well, it's it's impossible to look at this without thinking that there was very likely some kind of quid pro quo there. We don't know the details. Was there actually an explicit agreement between the Fukimorista members of Congress who voted to save Pedro Pablo Kaczynski and the president? Or was it simply that after it happened, he felt that he owed them you know, as a debt of gratitude, he needed to free Alberto Fujimori. That's not clear, but I don't think there's anyone in Peru today who doesn't think this was a quid pro quo for the impeachment vote. Simeon Tegel speaking to me from Lima. Music, it's often said, is the soundtrack to our lives, and for the home and office of the US president, it's no different. A new book produced by the White House Historical Association called Music at the White House looks at the relationship and how it's developed over the centuries. Jane O'Brien went to meet some of the music makers. Founded by an act of Congress signed by President John Adams in 1798, the United States Marine Band has been responsible for providing music to the White House and the President ever since. Colonel Jason Fettig is the director. 
every White House takes on to some degree the personality and the tastes of its occupants. There's also a certain amount of tradition that we've carried through for more than two centuries and we always endeavor to combine those two elements. You've served under four presidents. That's correct. You've been inside the Trump White House. What was that like? Does he like music? President Trump loves music. So too did many other presidents, according to Stuart McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association, which has just released a new book, Music at the White House. Thomas Jefferson played the violin, John Quincy Adams the flute, many presidents played the piano from Truman and Nixon. Wonderful story of Richard Nixon playing the piano with Pearl Bailey singing. And of course we all know of President Bill Clinton and the saxophone. Jazz, opera, folk, country, classical music and marching tunes have all been played at the White House by all sorts of different people. But technology more than anything else has ensured that the White House is indeed America's stage. The ability to showcase musical performances through technology of television, there's that wonderful tour that President Truman gave of the White House in 1952 after it had been completely renovated and he sat down and played the piano, an American president playing the piano on television for the American people. The president leads the tour to the East Room on whose piano he plays a small portion of Mozart's Ninth Sonata. Thank you very much, Mr. America's cultural explosion in the 1950s was enhanced and promoted by President John F. Kennedy in the 60s. But it was the 1980s and Ronald Reagan's sense of showbiz that really opened up the White House with regular television performances showcasing a much broader range of American music. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. In the early days of our country, the music was an import of culture from Europe and other parts of the world. Those countries had an influence on ours in many ways and over time they've evolved and we've now evolved into our own American influence of music and culture and I suppose we're exporting that back to the world. But as the oldest continuing music group in the US, the Marine Band has most often provided the soundtrack of diplomacy. I feel that weight of history every single day. You know, when you step foot inside the executive mansion and you have the responsibility of setting the tone for whatever event is happening at that time, it's exhilarating. Uh, there is this uh, sense of electricity and a lot of times it is driven by music. We see so often in our service that music is one of the central players in the culture and the kind of ambiance of the White House. The musicians of the White House, and they were there with Jane O'Brien, there'll be talent of a much uh, different order. Lower would be a more concise way of putting it. Uh, in the second half of the programme with the News Hour Christmas Quiz with James Kamarasamy, putting me and some of the other presenters through our paces. Failure is the key word. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for our annual look back at the people and events that have made the news. Please put your hands together for your quiz master for 2017, James Kumarasamy. Yes, yes. 
Thank you so much. I'm truly flattered. Uh, welcome to the eighth, yes, it is the eighth annual BBC World Service end of year news quiz. And I'll be putting the two teams of news hour presenters to the test. Let's welcome back, and I think this is the first time I've said this, the reigning champions. <laughs> Team one, Razia Iqbal and Tim Franks. Oh, yes. And back. Yes, indeed. Back to the battle and with a point to prove, I think we can say this year, last year's losers. <laughs> Second place. Second place. Yes. Rebecca Kesby and James Menendez. <laughs> now, we're going to start with the end, our obituary round. Just listen carefully, guys. You've got to hear the voices of 10 people who passed away during 2017. Pens at the ready. Here we go. In China, I just want to be an intellectual writer. If you try to be that, you would definitely clash with the political system. She was a great champion herself. She has won a number of Grand Slams, but she never won it here. So it's a non-compact singularities corresponding to the short paths between singularities. For example, in prison, he got us all to exercise. Now I go to see him when he's in hospital. And I'm shocked at this strong man, a shadow of himself. The alarm howled very loud. There was a panel with bright red letters which said missile start. I don't want to sound big-headed, but I really did not want to be the man to trigger World War III. It was incredibly stressful. What religion are you? Mr. Grant, I don't quite know how to say this, but uh, you're not allowed to ask that when someone's applying for a job. It's, it's against the law. Would you think I was violating your civil rights if I asked if you're married? Presbyterian. <laughs> However, it's my father's decision. So once he decides, uh, we have to support Personally, I'm not interested in this issue. <laughs> I'm not interested in the politics. We have discussed with Americans the issue of liberating Iraq from dictatorship. We think that this is the task of Iraqi people with the help of the United States, not through American invasion. Voices there of 10 people who passed away during 2017 with thanks to MTM Enterprises for one of those pieces of audio. We'll bring you the answers just before the end of the programme. But let's now test the buzzers. Tim and Razia. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cruel. Oh, that's unkind. That's so cruel. Yeah. Who was that? Theresa May at the Conservative Party conference and coughing all the way through it pretty much. She did. James and Rebecca now. I think one of your children's just walked in. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. I'd almost so, forgotten that. That, oh, that was this, this year. year. How can you forget, James? Just talk us through that moment when the back of your head featured around the world. <laughs> so, Professor Robert Kelly, he's, he sat in his spare bedroom in his flat in South Korea. His daughter comes in, first of all, swinging her arms around, feeling very pleased with herself that she's managed to come into the door when she knows full well she's not meant to. And then, of course, her 
baby brother follows in his <laughs> walker. This is all on Skype, isn't it? And this is all on Skype because he's fixed up this webcam in his room. And, and then, of course, when Mr. Kelly's wife realises what's happening, she darts in. <laughs> Books are falling off the bed. He and carries... Conservative Party conference. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, let's move on to the questions now with uh, quick fire, <clears throat> and uh, your time starts now. Several hundred were killed in mid August when mudslides and flooding hit the capital of which African? Oh, excuse me. Tim and Razia. Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is the correct answer. According to the World Economic Forum, which country had 2017's highest rate of inflation? Oh, excuse me. Venezuela. Correct. Let's have a listen to Hillary Clinton. I was shocked and appalled because oh, I've known him me. politics. Um, she's talking about Harvey Weinstein. She is indeed talking about Harvey Weinstein. Former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe's political reign came to an end this year after 37 years in power. But what title did he hold between 1980 and 1987 I before... I think one of your children's just walked in. That was me and I'm now regretting it. But I was going to say Prime Minister, but... Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, on the 1st of October, a gunman opened fire from the 32nd floor of a Las Vegas hotel, killing 59 people. But what was the name of the hotel? Oh, Oh, excuse me. Razia and Tim? I want to say Mandalay something or other. Mandalay Bay. James is correct, but I think that was close enough. The Mandalay Bay Hotel was indeed correct. Okay, for one point, tell me the name of the following speaker and the subject that she's addressing. We would like to invite the members of our I think one of your children has just walked in. James and Rebecca. So that was Aung San Suu Kyi. Yes. And I imagine it was to do with the Rohingya crisis. Correct. Yeah. In May, a cyber attack tool originating from America's National Security Agency was used in a ransomware attack hitting computers across the planet. What was the I ransomware think one of your has just walked in. called, James and Rebecca? WannaCry. WannaCry, very good. Yeah, that's the end of the quickfire round. Now, how could any look back at 2017 be complete without a special round examining the number one news generator of the year, perhaps of modern times? That's right. It's a Donald Trump round. (laughs) Razzie and Tim, you're up first. Which Trump appointee has disappointed him here? If he was going to if he should have told me prior to taking office, and I would have quite simply picked somebody else. I'm going to guess that was General Michael Flynn. Yeah, I would say so too. It's a good guess, but it's not right. Well, I guess if it's not Flynn, it must be Paul Manafort. Yes, why not? Yeah, it could be. Yep. It's Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, after his recusal from presiding over the uh, Justice Department probes into the alleged Russian involvement in the 2016 presidential election. Mm. You can guess at naming the individual that this voice belongs to. Since the first questions were raised in March, I have been consistent in saying that I was eager to share any information I have with the investigating bodies, and I've done so today. Oh, is that um, Papadopoulos? Hmm. Is that his name? Possibly. The sort of junior pipsqueak on the National Security Council whom Donald Trump had never met but was photographed next to. Unfortunately, it's not. No, I'm just going to carry on talking. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping that I might come up with a different name. I'm just conferring here with my colleague. Is Mm. it not Jared Kushner? He's got a very strange voice. Yeah, I wouldn't know what he... I mean, I was going to say Papadopoulos as well. The son-in-law, Jared Kushner? Correct. He sounds unerringly like Mr Papadopoulos. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tim and Razia, have listened to this and your question will follow. He obviously has a hang-up about professional women. It's disgusting that someone would attack Mika Brzezinski in such a low manner to begin with anyone. 
but that's the President of the United States. That's the Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. But what Twitter comment from the Commander-in-Chief about the news anchor, Mika Brzezinski, was he referring to? Oh, that I think she had a facelift and that it hadn't gone terribly well. Yep, excellent. Yes. He referred to her once visiting his Florida resort whilst he claimed that she was, quote, bleeding badly from a facelift. Oh. He also called her low IQ crazy Mika. He's a charmer, isn't he? Some might say. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Razor and Tim, where did the event being discussed here on the Trinity Broadcasting Network take place? They had these beautiful soft towels, very good towels. <laughs> It's one of his foreign trips, isn't it? What do you reckon? Uh, Saudi? Okay, we're going to go Saudi Arabia. No, it wasn't. Go on, um, you go. I have no idea. Beijing. It's not Beijing. I tell you what, that, that was a short clip. Can we just play the longer clip? That might help you. It's not going to help you get a point. They had these beautiful soft towels, very good towels. And I came in and there was a crowd of a lot of people. And they were screaming and they were loving everything. And we were. I was having fun. They were having fun. Well, it's not Saudi. <laughs> um, paper no. towels we're talking about. That was in Puerto Rico uh, after ah, Hurricane Maria. Gosh, and he okay. was throwing oh. towels into yes, the crowd. Right, yeah. Wow, it's just a sign of how busy the year has been that we don't mm. remember that <laughs> yeah. moment when the President of the United States was throwing paper towels. James and Rebecca, mm. what story is the President talking about here? I think there's blame on both sides. Mm. This is Charlottesville and the... Yeah. Protests. Yeah, Nazis and uh, anti-Nazi campaigns you're right. as well. Which presidential action is being defended here? Dead children. There can't be a worse sight. That's a butcher. That's a butcher. So I felt we had to do something about it. Oh yeah. Was this, was this after the chemical attack in Syria and they bombed the airfield? Yeah. Yep. Final one for Rebecca and James. Here's a woman from the northeast of England talking about the moment that she showed her friend a close-up picture that she had taken for the vet of a cyst growing in her dog's ear. <laughs> and she was like, no, no, there's a face. And I was like, what are you on about? And she's like, zoom out and tilt the phone to the left. Yeah. And she's like, Donald Trump's in chief here. <laughs> and it took us like a second to click on. And then we had a giggle about it. But I just didn't think anything else would come of that. What came of that was global recognition for the spitting image of Donald Trump in her dog chief's ear. But what breed of dog? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think, easy. well, no, it must have, it, it had big ears, uh, which narrows it down. And they were floppy, uh, so I think we're looking at some sort of Labrador cross, possibly a pointer. A Russian poodle. Ru- no, it wasn't a poodle. <laughs> wasn't a poodle. Come on, he gets half a point for that bit of humour, surely, Definitely. surely. I, Tim, I would, Tim, I would Tim dog lover Franks, looks as though he's <laughs> wagging his tail. Go on, Tim. <laughs> Uh, it was a Rhodesian Mastiff. It was a Beagle. <laughs> oh, as I say. <laughs> and if you haven't seen the picture, have a look online. Um, beagle Ear Trump. Put that in your search engine. I'm sure you'll find it. <laughs> Let's reflect now on 2017 through the medium of song. Oh, dear. I need you to name at least one of the two women who are singing here and to identify the event at which they're singing. I think one of your children has just walked in. Rebecca and James. This is at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester after the terrible terror attack. One of those people is that one with the tongue. And the other one is Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande was indeed one. The other was Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus oh, there with the tongue. Everyone has a tongue, don't they? 
<laughs> she waggles hers around okay. a lot. The kids love it, right. I don't know. Tongue twerking. Right, yeah. that was at the One Love concert in Manchester. That was just two weeks after the suicide bombing at the uh, Ariana Grande concert in the city, which killed 22 people. It was actually a day after three men killed eight people in a vehicle, a knife attack on London Bridge. So a, a pretty chilling few weeks here in the UK, which apparent political victory is being celebrated in song here. I think this is uh, Catalonia, and I think it is uh, when the vote went through to unilaterally declare independence and they all started singing inside the assembly. Correct. Very good. <laughs> now your final musical uh, question. Two world leaders observed the following marching band performance, each displaying a decidedly different reaction to the yes. other. Their names, please. Yes, I know this. Oh, it was brilliant. <laughs> it one of my favourite moments of the year. It was when President Trump went over to France and President Macron was jigging away and Mr Trump uh, didn't. Not Because if you don't recognise the original, it sort of means nothing. It does. Not indeed. <laughs> Daft Punk medley there on Bastille Day. Yeah. Now, back by very popular demand. <laughs> Spooky music. What does it mean? Ghost. The mystery guest round oh. is back. We're joined now on the line by an individual who is in the news in 2017. It's a job of our teams to guess who oh. that person is. And we apologise to them. Yeah. You can apologise in advance, you whatever you and want. And afterwards. <laughs> Remember, it's just yes or no questions. Hello, mystery guest. Hello. Right, there's the mystery guest. So, Rebecca and James, you get to ask the mystery guest a question. Were you famous before this? Oh, no, that's the wrong question, because he's going to say no. Yes-ish. Oh, yes ish. Okay. I think that's famous. a yes. yes. I think yes. Okay, already famous. Mm. And was this something that you personally did? Oh, yes. Are you proud of what you did? Yes. <laughs> well, that's positive. <laughs> Would you do it again? Yes. Was it a sporting achievement? Mm. Ish. No. I'd, I'd say no. Yeah, no. I'd say no. I think let's pass it over to Tim and Razzie. Yeah. Did what you achieved uh, result in the story going viral? Uh, yes. Was it a death-defying feat? Mm. No. Um, are you putting on a fake voice right now to throw us off the scent? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies, By yet, which yet again. Meant that it's extremely alluring, and um, <laughs> she wishes that she had a voice like that. Um, um, what um, kind of events do we cover on News Hour? Uh, well, oh, quite did a lot you of hand a P45 to Theresa May at the oh. Conservative Party conference speech? No. That, for those who are unaware, was a comedian who did indeed hand a form that people get when they lose their jobs. Mm to the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, at the Conservative Party conference. Did it take a lot of planning? Oh, yes. Was there a, a humorous element to this? Yes. Did you do this alone, sir? Yes. Is this an endurance test of some kind, this quiz and, indeed, what <laughs> you did? <laughs> the quizzes. Uh, no. No. Ah. 
Did you jump out of a plane? No. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's not on, sport. Guys. There's humour, we've said. Okay. And I have to say, I'm going to have to give you a clue because yeah. when you talked about politics, you were on the right line. Okay. He's got a British accent. Mm. Mm. If it's not the guy with the UB40, P49. Mm, P49. 45. <laughs> yeah. Mine's in the post. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was just going to say, it's a sign that you've never had one, Rebecca. Oh, well, I've been close to it, Razia, let me tell you. Not as yet. Um, I'm not in UB40. No, no. (laughs) There was some singing involved, wasn't there, guest? On YouTube, yes. On my most famous appearance, no. But it was on a stage. I'm giving you clues myself. He is, he's he's doing <laughs> You're getting so tired of us uh, asking uh, such uh, feeble uh, questions and not guessing. Who trains these journalists? <laughs> Listen, okay, to this. Politics, humour and Tim, when you talked about Theresa May, you were absolutely very, very close. In fact, it is directly related to Theresa May. Oh. Oh, Lord Buckethead. Hello. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what an honour. What an honour. And of course, oh, my, as we... I was presenting the election night programme and I think in the <laughs> many hours I was on air, it was probably the highlight, retweeting some of your performances from that evening. I think you're talking into the ether now, Tim, because... Oh! Here, here he is, the magic of radio. It is Lord Buckethead. Welcome, Your Lordship. Thank you so much for coming. This is the highlight. This is Lord Buckethead. You you look lovely. So, you have some questions. We're in the studio with Lord Buckethead. (laughs) I can retire a happy man. Quite right. You certainly can. And if, just on the very, very small chance that people listening do not know who Lord Buckethead is... Just tell us why you're in the news this year in particular. I am in the news because my spaceship was passing the Kuiper Belt this spring and I had just finished the box set of Columbo again (laughs) when I intercepted some Earth transmissions saying that your countries were in dire need of more effective democratic opposition. And I was at a loose end. So I popped along. Indeed, to a particular constituency, didn't you? Yes, in Maidenhead. (laughs) And I came 7th out of 13 with 249 precious votes, which is a Lord Buckethead record, and I'm very proud. Because, Lord Buckethead, you have stood in previous general elections in this country, haven't you? I have. I took on Margaret Thatcher. You probably don't remember her, but uh, she used to be the British Prime Minister, and she wasn't very successful, but I got 130 (laughs) votes against her. In uh, Finchley, 92, I took on John Major in Huntingdon. I got about 100 votes there. Took a, a little bit of a sabbatical for 25 Earth years <laughs> and then thought, you know, let's give it a whirl. Excellent. And, and, and what, what would you say is your kind of major policy? Well, I have a, a fully costed suite of policies, Lazia. <laughs> uh, where shall we start? Uh, there's the nationalisation of Adele. Uh, <laughs> why not? She should be brought into public ownership. Uh, on Brexit, I would argue for another referendum about whether there should be another referendum. Oh, that would go down very well. Everyone in Britain loves referendums, don't they? I mean... I have a plan. I think if you had a referendum and you said on the ballot paper, do you want a say in this anymore? (laughs) (laughs) If people said no, then they would need the politicians to get on with it. So, uh, win-win. 
And our listeners in the United States might recognise you from your appearance on at least one show over there. Yes, well, they, they might know me from the uh, 1984 movie, which uh, I call a documentary, Hyperspace, where I first uh, appeared. But uh, this summer I was on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and I would say was instrumental in them winning uh, an Emmy. Um, I thought I thought members of the House of Lords couldn't stand in general elections. He's a galactic time lord, <laughs> not a member of the House of Lords. Um, uh, that's no, sort of lord. Uh, spe- space lord. A space lord. Yes. Time yes. lords are fictional. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is fact. This is the real thing. This is thing. the most fact we've ever had. Do you, do you worry that uh, your constituents wouldn't be able to look you in the eye, eyes? Visor. Uh, visor. Okay, yeah, I'm just trying to work out yes. where Do you, you have are. To crouch when you get on the tube. Uh, I don't take the tube. Uh, really? I, I tend to go by a cloaked spaceship, or when that does not uh, suffice, I, I walk. Yeah. Plans for 2018, Lord Buckethead? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I want to uh, redo the bathroom on board my ship uh, because it's getting a bit tired. Maybe write the old memoirs. And then, of course, uh, yes. Strictly come dancing or dancing. <laughs> you know, the jungle Just waiting for that call. They're all, they're all clamouring for me, so uh, let's see who the highest bidder is. Lord Buckethead, thank you so much for being part of this year's quiz. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can I say thank you to you as well, very briefly? I just want to say, you guys do a sterling job. Yeah, I know you're the BBC World Service, so it's quite parochial. You only <laughs> to this planet. But... There are a lot of hard stories you have to cover, and I think in a world of fake news, you do it with fairness and accuracy. So I want to say well done, have a good Christmas break, and uh, try not to fall asleep at your desks. <laughs> How about that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure to all of you. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Bye, bye. What a lovely chap. Right, after that, back to earth. And fingers on the buzzers for your starter question. And this is the sports round. Brilliant. Which which retiring sports star is being eulogised here? It's a blessing to not just Jamaica. I think one of your children has just walked in. Usain Bolt. Yeah, an eight-time Olympic gold medalist. In 2017, NFL player Colin Kaepernick was left without a team after leading the Take a Knee protest. We've all tried, and I think I just about got it right, pronounced Kaepernick, but how do you spell it? It's a K, isn't it? Yeah. Just like Ka- Kaper- Kapernich, is it? With a C-H no. on the end? Kaepernick? There was a funny bit there. Ah, uh, yeah. So Go on. K-A-E-P-E-R-N-I-K. C-K. 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 Correct. <laughs> Eventually, yes, yes, I was absolutely yeah. spelling on the radio. Uh, James and Rebecca still. Who's this and what's the story? I respect what he's doing. Fifty and oh, that's after the fact. I was like, I accept it and just let it, let let him be. If I had a rematch, I would correct it and I would beat him. Ooh, yes. It's, it's got to be boxing. Boxing, yeah, but um... is it one of the Lichko boys? He sounds a bit Eastern European. No, Tim and no, no, uh, Razia. Colin McGregor. Conor McGregor. Conor. Conor McGregor. Mm. He, said, he Colin. said Colin. He said Colin. Half a Colin. point for that. <laughs> I'm no, I said, uh, I said Colin. <laughs> yes. 
half a With point for slurring. Slurry. Mixed yeah. martial arts lightweight mm. champion Conor McGregor oh, after his uh, big yes. money crossover yes. bout against Floyd Mayweather of in course. Las Vegas in August. Uh. It is time now to get the answers to our obituaries round. Mm. Number one was China's most prominent human rights and democracy advocate, the Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo, the American rock and roll legend Chuck Berry. Okay. Right. Number three, the former Czech Wimbledon champion, Jana Novotna. Number <laughs> four was the first woman to receive the prestigious Fields Medal for Mathematics, the 40-year-old when she yes. died, sadly, Iranian, oh, Mariam oh. Mirzakhani. Oh, I knew that. Number five, the veteran South African anti-apartheid oh. activist, Ahmed Kathrada. Oh, I knew that too. I did But you didn't. That. Lots of but knowledge. <laughs> Little penmanship, yes. penwomanship. Number six was the man credited with preventing World War Three, the former mm. Soviet military officer, Stanislav Petrov. He was on duty at the Russian Nuclear Early Warning Center in 83 when computers wrongly detected multiple incoming <laughs> nuclear missiles from the United States. Number seven was the uh, trailblazing American actress Mary Tyler Moore. The man talking about abiding by his father's political decisions, whatever they may be. That was the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, who was killed at uh, Kuala Lumpur Airport. His face was smeared with VX nerve agent. Number nine, the man who would later go on to become the president of Iraq, the Kurdish politician Jalal Talabani. And number ten, the petty easy one, it was indeed (laughs) the American musician Tom Petty. How did you do? They got seven out of ten on that. Tim and Razzy got seven, and you got six, six. James and Rebecca. That was creditable. Both of you, well done. We we are now at the end of... I know, I know. I can reveal now the final results. Tim and Razia have 17 and a half points. James and Rebecca, 21. They are back. They're back. James, where's the crown? Not just for the viral video of the year, but for (laughs) the victor of this year's News Hour quiz. So, congratulations to Rebecca and to James. Commiserations to Tim and Razia. There's always next year, guys. <laughs> all that is left for all of us here on News Out to do is to wish you all a very happy festive season and uh, to uh, welcome you back in 2018. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts. Our brand new podcast series, The Assassination, is about an unsolved murder with global ramifications. It's an investigation into the assassination of one of the world's most prominent politicians, Pakistan's Benazir Bhutto. Subscribe now and you won't miss episode one. Search for The Assassination where you get your podcasts.